HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers, and a little bit of echoes, but I'm not going to worry about it because we are DIYing our way here. I'm in the headquarters of Greenhorns on the main street of Hudson, New York, in the Hudson Valley, our basket of the revolution, and uh, still, still, still the breadbasket of New York City, although really only geographically, not in practice. So we have a lot of potential. I'm talking today with Tina from Double J Ranch, sorry, not Double J, Walking J Ranch uh, in Tucson, Arizona. She sells her meat. Tina, you have an amazing farm access story. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Okay, well, we're going to get right into this story. Would you mind just giving a little background on your... uh, how you how you came into the farm uh, ranching business, and then we'll go straight in and talk about this access to ranch land. It's like very very strange. Yeah, well we um, we've both been in agriculture to some extent, either growing up in it or um, living on in rural areas. But we wanted to be on the land where we could actually make money off of it. So we ended up trading our little remote ranch, which was just a horse property basically, with a um, a woman who wanted to live on that ranch, and she didn't want her farm anymore because it was she was getting older and it was too high maintenance. So we traded, and here we are on the farm, and it's a... You know, an irrigated pasture type of farm with grandfathered water rights, and which gives us the ability to grow grass for our pastured poultry and pork and our grass-fed cows. And then we have enough space where we can do um, a CSA garden as well. So uh, you had been doing work in horses and, and leading trips on horseback. Uh, for a while, what 
what was the transition like into more uh, kind of stable farming? And then how, how did you work this deal? Like, how did it go down? The deal to trade the property? Yeah. We just decided that we wanted to be where she was living and she wanted to be where we were living. And once we appraised the property, it turned out to be relatively close to each other in price. So we just agreed that we would, you know, do a straight trade and throw in a tractor here or an implement there. And, you know, it just worked out. It was, you know, a little bit of, I think, providence and (laughs) um, the desire to to want to make the trade and a, a really good real estate agent who understood what we all wanted and that it was really of equal value. Different um, acreage amounts, but um, of equal value nonetheless. And uh, what was the first question you asked? Um, well, I suppose I suppose the first question was, what's your business now compared to what your business was then? Right, the transition. Well... Just des- and describing... How your how your marketing how your marketing ramp up happened because you 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 went from basically one end of 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 ranching or kind of agritourism to really selling potato or you know poultry and pork and beef right and so um, when you have a guiding and outfitting business you still you're working hard but you're you're not really selling food per se. You're selling a service and entertainment. So, you know, the work ethic was there, and it was easy for us to jump into working really hard to sell something we really believed in. And in this sense, it's like a greater passion and purpose in terms of bringing good, healthy food to people's tables. And we got our start with um, another family that was already selling grass-fed beef, and they allowed us to come in and sell our product under their label and then we decided after a year that we really had a different uh, um, path to take in terms of how we were uh, using the farm. We wanted to have a really diverse polyculture farm, you know, along the lines of what Polyface Farm does. And we decided to branch out into chickens and eggs and uh pork and turkeys and a CSA growing the vegetables. So that was just a matter of um, creating a name for ourselves and uh, a logo and, you know, the branding part of it and showing up at farmer's markets with a really good product and uh, being really honest about what we do, really transparent about what we do, allowing people to come to the farm every week. We're open to the public and um, also just sticking to our guns that we're not going to push anybody else's product. We're just selling what we do on the farm. And it just sort of grew from there. And the farmer's markets and the whole food movement in Arizona, especially in Tucson, is just really starting to take off. So we have these farmer's markets that have been going on for a couple of years, uh, one major one for about six years, and... Since we're so close to the Mexican border, we have a lot of produce distributors, so we tend to have a lot of distributors at our farmers' markets uh, moving produce that comes up from Mexico, which is really not far away. It's, you know, within 100 miles or even closer, um, but some of those farms are a lot further down south, so it's it's hard to um, 
to think that that's not local when it's so close and it's always been here and it's so abundant. So people are starting to see that we are a true producer and uh, that's how we were able to get into some of the bigger farmers, the one big farmer's market in, in town and develop a name for ourselves because we really are farming. We really are doing all this stuff and people are, are seeing that and it makes a difference when you are honest even when you make mistakes and you put it out there. I do a newsletter weekly and very honest about why the chickens died this week or, you know, why we don't have beef for sale and we run out of things and, you know, we're not a safe way where we have that constant supply. So just really being honest about what it takes to meet the demand that people are asking for. So it, it takes a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work, and you can't, you can't take off a day and, and give up. you just got to keep pushing for it. And it's nice to see that the vegetable CSA is starting to grow to the point where we had to hire a garden manager to run that part of it because it was taking up about 90% of our time. And then the other parts, like the animal side of it, was being neglected because we're trying to create this the system on the farm where we're not bringing in so many inputs. So, you know, we're in our third year, moving into the fourth year, actually, and we decided that our chicken program wasn't sustainable because of all the feed we were having to bring in. So we're changing the whole program, dropping our chicken share. and You know, just it's the bottom line is sustainability and creating a product that we feel is truly grown here and not something we're just starting to pump a bunch of inputs in from other parts of the country, but really trying to, to uh, have a closed system on the farm that what we raise here has been fed here on what we've grown here. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I was actually about to ask you how you, uh, how you see farming animals like pigs and, and poultry in such an arid climate, you have irrigated pasture, but it's still, you know, very different from the rolling wet hills of Virginia or the places that many of us, uh, you know, in, in the Northeast have really different kind of uh, climate. And we also are, we're getting our, you know, we're getting our corn from the Midwest and we're getting our alfalfa from Canada. And you guys have plenty of alfalfa growing in the in the desert southwest, uh, but where was what's your kind of like feed situation, or what are you thinking about in terms of making your feeds more local? Well, the desert's an interesting place. It's very diverse, and as soon as you start to change elevation, you're into a, a different ecosystem that's still called the Sonoran Desert. So, you know, there's water issues on the low desert that we don't have up at a higher elevation where we have um, aquifers and a whole bunch of farms down this one little valley that we live in. So, you know, like if you look at most of the farms throughout Arizona between Phoenix and Tucson and south of Phoenix between California and Tucson where they are growing tons of alfalfa and iceberg lettuce and, you know, a lot of agriculture cotton uh, and even a lot of grains, barley, and uh, wheat and things like that, which people don't really know about, happens in the, the western part of the desert. It's all coming off of um, the Central Arizona Project, which is the Colorado Rivers being pumped into the state for the use of agriculture and for the cities of Phoenix and Tucson. So when people think, wow, you're growing all this in the desert, how can you do that? It's like, well, we're at a different elevation. We have our own well and aquifer. 
we have more rainfall than they do down in the desert. So it's, you know, our average rainfall is about the same as Saskatchewan, Canada, in terms of an arid farming type of situation, except that the climate is different. You know, we don't get the intense cold. We don't get the, the snowfall that, you know, we can hold the moisture in longer. We have different soils. Soil is the biggest issue, amending the soil here. But um, in terms of feed, there are there is alfalfa growing here. Um, most of it gets shipped overseas. That's the interesting thing. You know, Arizona exports 90-some percent of the food that it grows, and then we import 90-some percent of the food into the state from other states. So it's this funny system where we could truly be sustainable in the state, but we're shipping everything out so that we can create a, a global economy and we can have, you know, connections and, you know, the whole world economy type thing rather than, you know, focusing local, which is, a you know, a whole different paradigm. But there is there is feed being grown here. We have found a farmer east of Tucson who has agreed to grow a non-GMO crop of corn and milo for his nephew who has a chicken operation, and then we jumped on board um, with them to be able to buy that uh, corn and milo as well. It's not organic, but it is non-GMO, so that's a local input that we have to bring onto the farm to feed the pigs and the chickens and the turkeys. And then we try and plant really good grasses to maintain them throughout the different seasons. So, you know, we're getting ready right now to seed some fall grasses to maintain the the pork and the poultry throughout the season. And I mentioned changing the chicken program where my husband wants to grow different types of uh, pulses or like a lentil, what they call a pulse, and have them harvest that themselves so that we don't have to bring in so much feed to feed them and move to a multi-purpose bird rather than just a broiler chicken that you butcher at 11 weeks. So something that will lay for a couple of years and then it's a nice sized laying hen or the roosters that come with them and then we butcher them and that's the chicken as opposed to, you know, butchering every four weeks and having this ongoing program and moving chicken tractors, but moving more towards free range and a different kind of species of bird and different plants for them to eat. So we're just trying to tweak everything so that it's more sustainable. And, you know, pigs will eat almost anything, and they don't need to be supplemented as much as the broiler chickens do. And the broiler chickens what was a really unsustainable part of the farm. And the pigs, you know, we've been giving them some mesquite beans that are falling off of the trees, and they really like that. Um, and planting things like uh, brassicas, it's called rape assics, so a different kind of plant that they can root around for and, you know, get more nutrition out of the tops. And just really playing around with um, different crops for the animals. And the cows are actually the easiest. They make the most money. They have the least inputs. They're the least amount of work. You put them on the grass. You grow good grass. <laughs> and that's about it. You don't have to do much with them. But, you know, the pigs were rotating pastures. The chickens were the most inputs. And the garden actually is um, the most intense in terms of labor, uh, but we have found a local seed source, and you know it's our own manpower. So, just trying to do that balance act between all the different things that are happening on the farm to make it as local as possible, sustainable as possible, is the challenge. But what else are you going to do but grow good food? Are you there? 
Sorry, I put you on mute because the train was going by. <laughs> like a lot of people, you get you get into broilers because people want to eat chicken, and and uh, and then you discover that they're kind of yucky. How they just sit there and eat and poop and eat and poop, and then you kill them so quickly anyway. Uh, but not my husband would agree with you. He, yeah, I like chicken, and so does everybody else. That's the highest demand. Everybody wants chicken, you know. And then when you sit down and you figure out your cost. You know, you're looking at $6 chicken, $7 chicken, and we never never have considered our labor of butchering them into the cost of what we charge the customer. And that, so it's not exactly the most sustainable, and it is a tropical bird, and here we have them in the desert where we actually freeze every night in the winter, so we're still a desert, but we still have these extreme temperatures come winter time. So in the winter, all their energy goes into getting warm or keeping warm rather than putting on the weight you need for your 11 weeks and it's just you know it's just this ongoing thing with the chickens and everybody wants to have chicken and it's one of those things where you almost try and talk people into not buying your product because it really isn't sustainable and if we just did chicken we were just chicken farmers we would lose that diversity and our whole goal is to try and stay diverse so that you're not just having, like, a monoculture farm. You know what I mean? It sounds like you're really uh, pretty strong-minded about designing your farm system around your goals, and it sounds like the quality of life goal is in there somewhere. I wonder if you're having a conscious decision-making process or if you're using holistic management or or how you kind of navigate your year three and you're, like, still changing around and seeing what goes where. Um, maybe you could explain some of your thoughts, like how you approach the, your goals and, and system design. Well, we look, at, we look at money. You know, if we're not making money on something, what's wrong? Obviously, there's too many um, outputs, not enough money coming in, or too, we're bringing in too much um, inputs outside feed or something, you know, because the chickens aren't making money. What what is the problem? So we look at that, and we realize we are bringing in a lot of feed, and we can't make a living off of do- what we're doing. And plus, it's a lot of work, you know, butchering every four weeks to meet the demand of what people want, you know, like 120-some, 150 birds every four weeks. And if we keep driving up the price to match what the costs are, then nobody's going to buy it, which is what we're seeing starting to happen you know, they'll sell at $5 and less. But as soon as we move above $5, things start to slow down a little bit for the purchasing. Well, you're talking to us. You know, we have people who sell chickens for $25 around here, you know, even 30 Yeah. Really and in Arizona, chicken. you know, it's it's a cheaper state to live in. We have a low, very low socioeconomic demographic here unless you go into the foothills or of Tucson or into Phoenix, and then you can start getting that. But if you just, you know, your regular person... Joe Blow on the street, you know, middle class income has a hard time with that. Although if they're really, truly into buying good, healthy food, they'll save up, you know, to buy that chicken or be part of the chicken share. But, you know, it's, it's, I get it all the time. Why does your chicken cost so much? And I always respond by saying, why do you think chicken doesn't cost that much in a store? You know, how, where do you see the difference in how this chicken was raised and what it ate? And they do eat grass, but we figured out that our broilers are only eating about 20 to 30% grass, if that, even when they're free-ranging. 
you know, we had so many bugs in our garden, so we threw the broilers in there to take care of the bugs because they cleaned the bugs off the pasture, and they were still eating so much feed because they're growing so much faster. And they, they need that constant um, protein and all the other stuff that they're getting out of the feed. But when it comes to, like, making the decisions on the farm, our, the money is the bottom line, but then it's also our lifestyle and our sanity and raising two small kids and trying to have a life on top of all that. And when we just get tired of doing something and I don't want to show up to a chicken butcher anymore, I know it's time to change. (laughs) You know, I used to love, not love butchering, but I used to find the value in it. And when I handed someone that chicken and sold it to them, it meant a lot to me that, you know, I butchered this by myself, by hand, and we raised it, you know. And it was something to be proud of. But um, at this point, it's like, wow, look what we're demanding. And we don't think about where anything comes from anymore or what goes into it. And we're just starting to realize that here in Arizona. And we're realizing as farmers that, you know, maybe chickens aren't the best way to go, but maybe there is a way we can do it where it is sustainable and still provide people with some good chicken. You know, the whole thing ties into pork as well. We have restaurants call us that want to source a local source for pork, and they want it at a dollar a pound because the farmer they were getting it from that's several hours away was selling it a dollar a pound, but maybe that man only grows pork, and he's raising 500 of them. You know, that's it. That's all he's doing, and I can't compete with something like that. And nor do I want to compete with that because that's not the point. It's not the point to raise cheap pork. The point is to raise a better product that's healthier for us, that's been on the grass, that doesn't um, take in a lot of additives or feed that is full of chemicals or antibiotics, um, that it's healthy, that it it isn't full of worms because it's been on good, clean grass and it lived a happy life. So karmically, we feel better about it. So those are the, that's sort of how we make decisions. And my husband usually um, has less tolerance than I do for certain things, so he's usually the first to say, okay, this needs to change. And how do the customers uh, respond? You're saying, you know, you're growing now a whole vegetable operation after having started with beef and, you know, cycling through the whole chicken thing and then going out of it. But how do your customers respond to these kinds of, uh, you know, that you, you get involved in the logistics of the thing and then you say, well, maybe we don't want to be in the business of uh, of this kind of chicken. What do they say? They actually respond well because I've, in the past two years of writing my newsletter, I've made a point of being very open about, you know, what what it costs to raise something or wh- how we operate the business and people feel sort of connected that way. They're like, wow, I didn't realize that. That's great. And then I, you know, I do tell them, if you do want chicken, here's two more chicken farmers that, you know, are in the area. Call them up. You know, it's not that I tell them you should never eat a chicken again. I give them other options, and I'm all for competition. I'm not going to not mention that there's other growers out there. You know, I think everyone, the more farmers, the better. But they respond well. They respect us a lot, I think, for being that upfront with them and sharing that information. I'll write a newsletter on this is what it costs us to raise this chicken, and this is why. You know, this is what it costs us to raise this pig, and this is why. And this is what we charge you. And we've done workshops where we've laid out 
the exact formula that my husband will use when he sits down to figure out what we're going to charge for a pork chop or for a quarter of a cow or a half of a hog. And this is how we came up with this number of $10 a pound for a share when you order a half of an animal. And so we're pretty open about that, and we want to share that information so people really do understand that when you get a feedlot animal, this is why it doesn't cost you that much. You know, this is where the difference is, and this is truly what it's going to cost you to farm if you're interested in farming. So, and that's, I mean, that's, it shouldn't be a secret. <laughs> it should be available. That should be well-known and understood by people because we're blind to just buying things in a store. We don't know the true cost of farming or the true cost of eating or the true cost of our impact as humans eating at the top of the food chain. And those are things we should know. So I've just spent the last couple of days um, at a little meeting up in Maine with some of the organizers from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers who are in Florida. They're organizing around the tomato industry, but they're working essentially in other places too on farm worker rights and farm worker issues and helping to negotiate uh, fairer wages for farm workers. And I was just talking with them about the wage structure that they are that the workers are getting and you know and I was like well how much are they paid an hour and they're like oh no it's not a per hour business this is a per, per piece business it changes on every different crop it changes on what the farmer wants out of the field it changes on this change on that and you know he was like well so for you know 18,000 t- uh, tons of watermelons you know a team of 10 and they divide $130 through the team for every uh 16, uh, you know, trailer full of watermelons that they harvest, you know, which doesn't include the time that you cut it, doesn't involve the time that you throw it. It's like the, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of this conversation, my head is spinning, and I was like, you know, how can we expect to compete against slavery, you know, yeah. against a totally abusive labor system? Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> the answer is, you know, we really can't compete. And the answer and as is... Long as what are we as consumers demanding? You know, we're de- it's, it's us. It's the consumers demanding that product, wanting it all the time, whenever we want, you know, and it comes back to people making those choices as consumers. That's what I see. I mean, as soon as you're going to have a way to make money, someone's going to make a profit off of something, you're going to have greed and you're going to have people in power going for that. But... You know, but it's us driving that. It's the same conversation you can have with the drug trade living here on the border with Mexico that, you know, 90-some percent of the drugs demanded in the world are in the U.S., but here we turn people into criminals to the south of us because they're moving it up here for us. You know, it's just a, it's a bigger economic paradigm and uh, consumer demand and, yeah, I don't want to blame capitalism as a way to move towards that. I'm not, you know, against capitalism, but that's, you know, that's sort of the nature of the beast in some to some extent. But that's why looking locally, shopping locally, that's one way to deal with that, and it, it'll touch it'll touch the the wages of you know a bunch of workers in a watermelon field to a certain extent, you know, don't go buy that watermelon from Walmart or Safeway. Buy it from a local farmer. 
Does that make so sense? Where, you? when you're looking around the farmer's market, where do you see uh, opportunity for new farmers in Arizona? Or are you feeling like there's just more growth possible within the kind of Tucson farmer's market scene? Or do you see a, a missing a missing infrastructure? Like, what have you noticed this week that you would share with those who are um, thinking about the Southwest and thinking about the young farmer's perspective? I think... Um I think we just need to educate people and start to fill up our stores with local food. And I I really do see that the consumer driving the whole thing. You know, I don't, I can't go in and tell Safeway to shut down their store, but, you know, put me in a depressing mood, put me in a Safeway or any, not just Safeway, any big box grocery store. And, you know, the whole thing about the middle aisles are all full of the products that are, you know, boxed and corn products or whatever, and the outsides is where everything is of any value that is real natural food. And I think it starts with our education. Um, In terms of a specific need for what farmers we need, um, I think we always need more farmers, but the thing is, is that until we get more customers those farmers aren't going to make a go of it. Farmers are struggling here already that are doing CSAs and just selling their vegetables. You know, they're struggling to hold on to their land and make their payments. And, you know, we're competing with Mexico and with big distributors that mostly are American-owned, bringing up produce from Mexico. Um, it's just I just feel it's such a consumer-driven thing. And, you know, we have a, a culture that went from food being an economy or the world having that food as your economy and, you know, moving those kinds of goods around to have a consumer economy. So we're buying disposable things constantly, and our food is thought of as that way. You know, it's got to be disposable food in a box, in a can. (laughs) You know, never mind leftovers or fresh food. How do you cook something? People don't know how to cook anymore. There's so many families I meet that they don't, they don't want to buy squash. They don't want a CSA because they would never eat those kinds of vegetables. Like, well, we've got to stop thinking that way. We have to start thinking that I'm going to eat what is in season, what I'm getting out of my CSA right now, and not I want to eat what I want when I want. I want that green pepper all the time, and I'm going to go get it whenever I want it at the store. So I think, you know, we definitely need more farmers, but we can't have more farmers till we have more customers buying our product. And we have the population base between Phoenix and Tucson and all, you know, Arizona is a fast-growing state. Everyone wants to come and live where there's sunshine all the time. But they need to be buying local food. We've got to get away from the big box grocery store concept, is my personal opinion. Well, I appreciate your personal opinion, and I appreciate your pickled okra. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the work you guys are doing uh, down there, and it's so great to have you on the show. I thank you. Well, thank you. I think the pickled okra was from Sleeping Frog Farm, though. Oh, no. <laughs> That's all right. Oh, so good. You'll have to get them on the show. They have a very interesting story. Okay, that sounds like a good suggestion. I'll put them on our list. We have a lot of shows. We have like 120 or something. Awesome. So we'll keep doing, we'll keep going, and, and hopefully I'll see you when I'm back down there. It was really awesome. fun. Come by the stand. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Severin. All right, everybody. So this is Greenhorns Radio. I'm just going to do a quick roundup of what's coming up here in September. It's kind of insane. Okay, here you go. 
the Heritage Harvest Festival in Virginia. That's on the 13th and 14th. Then on the 15th, Our Goods, that's a big party in New York City with OurGoods.org, which is a social network for barter in Union Square. And then on the 19th of September is an all-day grazing workshop with Jim Garrish. He's a holistic management guy, management intensive grazing, author of many books, uh, and conferences for a Stockman's grass farmer. Then the weekend of the 20th and 20, 21st and 22nd is Common Ground Fair in Maine. It's also Farm Aid uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And we're going to be greenhorning it up both places. We're doing weed dating in Maine, and we're doing a, uh, uh, um, archival video tent in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Then the following weekend is the Maker Fair, and we'll be there with... Um, Farm hack, demoing some farm hack inventions. Then in October we have Farm Hack Ithaca. In November we have Farm Hack Brooklyn. There's a lot. It's, it's just it's it's bumping. So please join the mailing list if you're a, a radio fan. Make sure to tune in to some of these events, and don't forget that you are likely to be a very important ally to a young farmer who feeds you. If you haven't already made friends, I'm, I suggest doing that as a first step. But um, explore the barter economy. If you're buying food from them already anyway, maybe think about showing up for a work party or organizing a work party or helping to repaint a barn that needs it uh, or raising money for a repair on the farm. Graphic design, babysitting, pep talk you know, CPA advice, whatever your skill is, if you're feeling a strong commitment and you're listening to radio about young farmers, you know, probably there's more you could do and more you could learn um, and skills that you may find yourself loving that you can swap for the skills that you already have. So that's my lesson of the day. Sorry to get preachy. This is Severin. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.